Now that is a good Christmas passage. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just want to, yeah. Uh, if you don't know me, um, I'm Matt. I have the privilege of being the to-be-soon to uh, son-in-law of Derek, the to-be-soon son-in-law of Jody, the to-be-soon fiancé of, oh, husband. Um, this intro becomes a lot shorter once I actually get married. But um, nonetheless, so yeah. So we're going to be speaking from this passage today. And as I said, it might be a bit of an interesting passage to be speaking from. Um, it doesn't sound all that Christmassy, but the main point of this passage is to be speaking about Jesus Christ. So it's about the gift of Jesus Christ being born. We see the male child born in the passage and how he comes to rule over the serpent. So primarily what we're seeing here is Jesus being born and then coming to rule over the serpent. So I just want to build a little bit of foundation from seeing as we're skipping ahead from the past revelations we've done. So in the previous few chapters, we've had what referred to as the seven trumpets. So we have seven trumpets being blown one after another, bringing these horrendous disasters and natural disasters and all these things just coming about, seemingly like horrendous things that you would just never imagine could actually happen on Earth. Yeah. These could symbolize specific things, and there's a lot of speculation as to what actually they might mean. But what we do know is that they symbolize the end times, so the time from when Jesus was born to when he will come again. And so now as we enter into chapter 12... We've come to the seventh trumpet, which is blown right before chapter 12, and it announces the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. We see him coming, and then the elders in heaven that you may have talked about are just proclaiming his name, going, oh, great is our Lord, all these things are coming. And so now, John's sitting here, getting this vision from God. And so it says that the... Can you get chapter 11 up, if that's possible? Just the very end of chapter 11. So yeah, that right there. So it says that God's temple in heaven was opened and he could see the Ark of his covenant. And so what God is trying to tell John here is that he's about to see deep heavenly truths. So these are things that aren't normally visible to us. So things that are spiritual, we're unable to see. But John is seeing them in this vision so that he can then communicate this to the church and help us to understand what's going on all around us. These spiritual things that we don't see and can't perceive. And then we also see later on that there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Bit of a weird thing to say. But all that essentially means is that that's God reminding us. This is used previously in Revelation to symbolize the fact that God is sovereign over this whole thing. He's saying that as this is happening, and as we're about to see the rest of this vision here, he is sovereign throughout the entire thing. That you, and we shouldn't forget that as we go through the rest of this passage, especially as we see dragons, and you, as you read the rest of the see beasts coming out on the ground, these just insane beasts that you couldn't even imagine in your head. But these are nonetheless all controlled and under the authority of God. So we're going to start now by heading into chapter 12. So we're going to enter in, and we see essentially the first part of this is the first six verses, which talk about all the characters that were introduced to, essentially. There's three characters, the dragon, the woman, and the child. So we introduce verse to the woman. So it says here, So a great sun appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So this actually takes us back to Genesis 37. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, 
it may remind you of Joseph's dream. So that's Joseph, in Joseph's dream, he is one of 12 stars, with all 11 stars bowing down to him. And so what that is meant to show was the 12, the 12 people that were bowing down to him were his brothers. Those would become the 12 heads of Jew, Israel. And that would, so then the woman here we're talking about is meant to depict Old Testament Israel. And so when we see the sun there, that's just meant to depict glory. And then when we see the moon under her feet, what that's meant to show us is that she has majesty and dominion. And so this, this isn't that the woman of Old Testament Israel necessarily had dominion, but the woman that would actually come from her would have that, that he would have dominion over the whole earth and that he would come in majesty and glory. So then, as we go into the next verse, we see now that the woman is pregnant. So she's currently crying out in pain and the agony of birth. So what this now symbolizes is Old Testament Israel awaiting the birth of this Messiah. So we see that in Genesis 3. It talks about the Messiah that would crush the head of the serpent. And so they had been waiting for this Messiah since that time for about 4,000 years. This, he had been prophesied through prophets for hundreds of years beforehand. And so they were just writhing in pain, waiting for the deliverance, constantly being smashed by nations outside of them, and all this, waiting for them to be put up top. So they were the reigning nation. But nothing had happened. And... So they continue to just wait, and that's what this is meant to depict. That woman writhing in pain also shows a little bit of us too. So it shows us as the church, as we are writhing as well. So we're under the burden of sin. We feel sin. Even as Christians, even though we're free and liberated, that we're, we still under, you, we see it all around us. We see our crops not yielding what they should. We see, you know, crime going on around us. There's so many things that show that we're still under the weight of something. But yet, as Christians... We experience an already but not yet kind of experience. So we see that she's awaiting and we're awaiting the redemption of our bodies and all these things. We're waiting for the second coming of Christ. But we can see that the woman is in labour and that a child is coming. So we have the woman in labour pains and then appears in verse 3 another great sign in the heavens. So we see in verse 3, so another great sign appears in it. Behold, it is the great red dragon. With seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Diadems just meaning crowns, essentially. Um, so again, another crazy image. Are we actually probably going to see a dragon? Very unlikely. But you never know. Um, so nonetheless, I just want to show what several aspects of this dragon. So, you know, we see, you know, all, all you see in your head is just, what is it? Seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. So what the, they essentially show different aspects of the dragon. So the seven heads are meant to represent what is a supreme intelligence. So he is far more intelligent, far more wise than us. And so it's meant to depict that. And then you also see that the ten horns, what they're meant to represent is an ex- extensive strength or power. So again, this is meant to show another aspect of him that even over the most powerful, like, you know, over presidents, over people who reign over you know, vast armies and everything. He is still more powerful and over them. And then we see that his crown shows his authority and sovereignty. We see that in Ephesians 4, it speaks of him as the prince of the power of the air. This meaning he has authority over all the earth. So he can direct world affairs. He can do that. It's not that he's sovereign or that he's in control, but nonetheless, he is still far above us in all that aspect. He can direct world affairs and all these kinds of things, normally to our detriment and to try and turn us away from God. And so there's also been much speculation as to whether these are like nations or people. 
I have no idea. You know, you can take your guess, go wild. Um, but essentially what I think John's main point here, or what God's trying to show us to John in this vision, is that the dragon is far more powerful, more wise, and stronger than any of us. So the idea that we can overcome him by ourselves or do any of that isn't even a thought that should necessarily pop into our heads. You can try it, it's not going to happen. And so, but, and I also just want to make clear, when we are talking about the dragon in this, this is referring to Satan, who I'm sure we're far more familiar with than the dragon. So there's also in verse, the rest of verse four, we'll see him sweeping down a third of the stars. So throughout most of Revelation and at the start in Revelation 120, you'll see that stars refer to angels. So all this means is that when there was everything going on in heaven before the creation, the devil convinced a third of the angels to come with him to join in his rebellion against God. And then eventually they were cast down to earth with him after he rebelled and he was thrown out of heaven by God. So this tells us that, you know, when we think of, oh, the devil's coming after me or this or that, or things you might hear people say, that essentially he may not be going after them personally, himself, but he has legions of angels, a third of the angels of the entirety of heaven, which are coming after you as well, possibly. So he has many, like an extensive army of angels. So now we see that... I believe in verse 5. So we are coming back to the woman giving birth. So we see the dragon standing before the woman. He's ready to devour this child. So this shows two things very clearly about the dragon. One, he knew exactly who this woman was giving birth to. When we sing all the carols about, here comes baby Jesus, all these sorts of things, you know, he didn't necessarily just see a baby. He saw something to fear. He essentially saw, number two, something that could disrupt his plans. He always wants to be sovereign. He wants to have God's glory. But in this child, this helpless child, you can just imagine Mary just sitting there. You don't, don't imagine that. But, like, she's sitting there. And as she's about to give birth and this child is about to be born, there's this ten-headed dragon ready to devour it. You've got to be wondering, there's something about this kid, something about this child that is scaring this massive, mighty beast who has dominion over all the earth. And so, obviously, we know that this baby is Jesus. So it speaks of him saying in the rest of the verse that he is the one to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So we know that she is the Messiah. And he knew that this was the prophesied one from Genesis 3, where it says, he will, he will strike his heel, but he will crush his head. And so Jesus is the one who came to come and do that. And we see the dragon seeking to devour him or kill him, essentially. And we see this in several ways throughout all of the old, like all of the New Testament. So it doesn't speak about them here, but you can see it whether it's in right after Jesus was born. You know, we don't sing Christmas carols about this part, but Herod's decree to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Every person under two was slaughtered, but yet Jesus was protected by God and was carried away to Egypt. Or we see it when he was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, or even when he was wrongfully accused and put to death on a cross. Even still, at the end of that, after every turn Satan sought to devour the child, he wasn't successful. Jesus died on that cross, but he was resurrected with new life. The dragon still could not devour him. And the passage says later that he was called up to God and to his throne. And he now sits on that throne and rules over the nations with a rod of iron. Satan has always wanted God's glory. He is always the one that's wanted to have dominion over all the earth. And when he saw the child, he saw that serious threat. And even after directing all his power and all his strength at him, 
Jesus is the one who reigns as sovereign over all the earth and of all the heavens. So now we take a turn, and I believe we're in verse 6 now. Um, so we see the women flee into the wilderness. We have Sim presuming that the dragon is chasing after her, that he is furious and wants to get at her. So the, the main thing we want to take from this is that, one, when we see a flea fleeing into the wilderness, it's not with, like, you know, some, like, fleeing into the wilderness to go hide in a log cabin or something like this. And it's not meant to sound dangerous or ominous or, like... The wilderness is actually a good thing for Christians. It takes us back to Exodus, where we see all of Israel fleeing out in the Exodus to Egypt, or freeing from Egypt to the Promised Land. So we see, so for 40 years, they spent wandering the wilderness, and that entire time, again... They were cared for God. There were, you know, stuff was raining from the skies. Their sandals for the whole 40 years never broke. We see there was provision from God and he was protecting them. This, you know, there's a whole book on it. You can go read it. Um, all about how God provided for them and cared for them during that time. So we also see that in the lives of several of the Old Testament saints and even in Jesus himself. So when we see that woman fleeing into the wilderness, we also see that as us, the church, so all of us here as believers, we are in the wilderness right now, but that's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing for us because it means that we're actually in a place prepared for us by God, that we're being nourished by him, we're being cared for him. He's providing for us and that, that pro- pro- divine protection or divine comfort is protecting us in the midst of all of the evil and chaos that is going around us. It means all the things we spoke of earlier as like, yeah, like, because you know, everything will ultimately fail us in the end but we have this place that is rest for us. We also see here it speaks of 1,260 days. If you know what this means, good on you. I have absolutely no idea. But nonetheless, I do know a little bit. There's many theories about it, but exactly what it means, one commentator puts it like this. So it means that the day of evil is short, temporary, and strictly controlled by God. The dragon will be allowed his brief period of final rebellion, But the people of God will be watched over by God throughout the entire time. Satan will be allowed to kill the body, but not the soul. So essentially we see there that we're protected. And all that 1260 days mean is that there is a finite end to this time. That all this that we have here will eventually come to an end. And that we'll actually be joined up with God to a far greater thing than this. So now we're entering into the second portion of the vision. This goes into far more detail about certain aspects of the original vision that we just read. So we enter into verse 7. So in this we see a scene of cosmic war happening in heaven between Michael and the dragon and both of their angels. Now already a weird thing to hear. When you think of heaven, you don't think war. You don't think angels fighting or like I've always imagined like kind of like, I don't know, like Star Wars or something. But what we do know is that it was happening and that one of the things to note is that some people are unaware of, Michael is known as one of three archangels within that. So there's Michael, Gabriel, who we also hear of when he speaks to Mary, and then we have Lucifer, or Satan. Um, and so Michael is often shown throughout the Bible as being one of the primary tools that God uses in spiritual warfare. He's the one that goes out, that fights for all the nations to protect us from these powers of darkness, from this great dragon, which is Satan. So the cosmic war that we're talking about was part of Satan's rebellion, his seeking God's God's glory for his own. He was seeking praise, and in response, God and his angels obviously had to fight back against that. They couldn't allow that to happen. And as we obviously see, he was defeated. 
he was thrown down and he was exiled from heaven. So he no longer has authority in the heavenly realms. So we also see in verse 9 when he is thrown down, he is referred to as that ancient serpent. Now again, this is another reference back to early Genesis. We see where we obviously know the serpent in the garden, the one that tempted Eve to eat the fruit. Well, not to eat the fruit, but twisted God's words nonetheless. Um, And he's also referred to by several other names being the devil, Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world. So there are several things to understand about the character of Satan from these names. So while he's depicted as a dragon in the garden, he actually appears as a serpent. This is meant to depict him as smart and cunning. As we see, he twists God's word in Genesis. He makes people think like, is that really almost like a half-truth? To make sort of lead us maybe like, oh, maybe it is okay. And now here we are because of Adam and Eve. So. so the devil doesn't attack God or his creatures by brute force, but by deceit. Perverting things ever so slightly to make them appear true. So this obviously, the devil doesn't operate by blatant lying. He doesn't come to us and tell us the opposite of the truth, but rather half-truth. To lie would be far too obvious, but he distorts the truth because it works even better than a lie. So we see how... Rather than knowingly turning from God, doing the opposite of what God wants, rather, we still think we're actually worshipping the God of the Bible. But rather, in reality, we're actually worshipping a God of half truths, which, in reality, that's as good as worshipping nothing at all. If we're not worshipping the God revealed in Scripture, then we're actually worshipping something that is an idol and not of heaven. So, so we'll take from this. His primary method of attack is deceit. So anything he can do, to lead us away, to take us from God, he will try to do it not by brute force, but by deceiving us and trying to trick us. So another aspect of his character is his desire to accuse us. So he seeks to bring charges against us to show that we have disobeyed God and the atonement for our sins hasn't been made. So this is like a scene in, takes like the courtroom of heaven. You know, it's a bit of a weird thing to imagine, but God as judge, and he's like a prosecutor. He's seeking to bring charges against us to show that we have done bad, which we obviously have. But there's also, he doesn't want there to be Jesus who is interceding for us, who is showing that the sins have been paid for, that we've been forgiven, that there's nothing that he can hold against us. And so that's constantly what he's seeking to do. And so that's an aspect of his character. And this also then flows in that he seeks to make our consciences feel guilty. So as you're walking around doing things, you know, we even, well, it worked quite well. Um, last night, when, um, you know, Wade was being a little bit naughty, he, um, we had this incident where, you know, Derek's sitting there with him, and he's like, oh, you know, um, you know you've been naughty. I was like, yes, I've been naughty. I've been naughty, I know. But he's like, but, geez, but you know, there's no naughty in you, because Jesus has paid for it all. So, yeah, but I'm still naughty. You know, he just, understanding that concept of, that, yes, we have done sin in the past and we will do sin in the future, but that if we are forgiven, that's past, present and future, that we see that we've been given. But the aspect is that he'll constantly continue to attack our conscience, bring things against us. God's not actually going to forgive you for that. You've done that far too many times. You've, again, you're here again. How are you doing this? All the little sins as well. He uses all of those to convince our consciences that we're actually not one of God's children. So he wants to trick us that we're still in slavery to sin when in reality we know, because we see it in Scripture, that we're free from sin, we're alive in Christ, that no longer we're under that conviction. So now we return to the passage, having seen in verses 8 and 9, the dragon's been defeated, he's been thrown down in earth with his angels. 
And so his authority in heaven has been removed, but he still has authority over this world. He still is the prince of the power of the air. But now in verses 10 through 12, we'll see exactly how even his earthly authority has been defeated by the child. So here we have it. The scene changes. We hear this triumphant proclamation. So, sorry, I just lost my phone for a second. Um, yeah. Um, and it speaks about the salvation and power of God's kingdom and Christ's authority. So this is speaking primarily about his victory on the cross. So this is his resurrection and ascension and all the things that he paid for in his life and by suffering on the cross for our, for our sins. So his victory ushered in, one, the deliverance of God's people from the kingdom of Satan. A great power had come and had conquered the forces of darkness, and so they no longer had any hold over the people of God. So that's what we were speaking about earlier, that we are no longer under sin. We don't have that anymore, but we're now in the kingdom of light. We're under the rule of Christ now. So Christ is... Christ has come and established his authority over us, over all the nations, and no longer Satan who rules over this realm. But it is now Christ who has come and has completely destroyed that. So the proclamation continues saying, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So we see now his ability to accuse us before God has been completely destroyed. And we also see he accuses us day and night So this is part of just his nature, his persisting need to try and find some fault within us. You can imagine him up there in heaven, bringing every tiny fault of yours before God, trying to find something. Why is he doing this? Because then he can show that you're not a child of God, and therefore in that final day, you will not be counted among the sheep. But nonetheless, when he is up there, he's been thrown down. He can't do anything. He actually can't do that. There's nothing that hasn't been paid for. Because we see that by Christ satisfying our debt upon the cross, he has no leg to stand on, no charge which, upon which he can bring upon us. So then the proclamation turns to God's people, and it speaks of how exactly we've conquered him. So it's, it's, it says there that we have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. So this is to say that Jesus sacrificed on the cross, the thing we've talking about, that obviously we continue to sin, but we are covered, we are forgiven because he paid our debt upon the cross. Therefore, so that we are forgiven And he died the death that we deserve so that we didn't have to. And so now Satan is put to death and he no longer have any power over us. He can't accuse us. He can't bring those charges against us. And it also speaks that we conquer by the word of our testimony. Now this essentially speaks to the outworking of that sacrifice in our lives. So it's not that we continue going on sinning. Obviously we will to a degree, but we seek forgiveness, we seek repentance. But it's actually about a lifestyle of faithfulness to his commands. We don't go out and forgive, be forgiven, and they continue to live the life we once did. We don't go out partying or whatever we may have done. Like, you know, reading through God's word, you'll be convicted of things. But rather than running away, we actually say, yes, God, I failed you, but I want to do it your way. And so we see that in the outworking of lives. And we also see it, as it says, by the word of our testimony. So we see that that's also a verbal commitment to God despite a period of suffering. When we go through struggles, through trials, whatever they may look like, when we still remain committed, not as though we're happy and cheery the whole time that we're going through it, but that we still remain committed to him and are still repenting, that we actually show an evidence to, the sa- to Satan that we have conquered him. So then this verse goes on to say, that we have not loved our lives even unto death. So this shows that the testimony of God's people will lead to suffering, possibly to persecution and even to death. Probably not a perceivable thing in this country, and we may never actually see it come to the point of persecution or death. But what this does mean 
is that as believers we are to have a mentality of that though, that we lay down everything of ourselves and we give it to Christ because he has given everything to us. God gave us his son and so he asks everything in return, not because he wants it or needs it, but because he knows that it's for our best. And so then we enter into the conclusion of the proclamation with this declaration of joy for those who are in heaven and woe for those who are on earth. And so the announcement to rejoice comes as a result of the victory on the cross and that the dragon has been defeated. This is that the kingdom of God has come and has vanquished the powers of evil once and for all. But those on earth are told to mourn because the dragon has been thrown down to them. He now has no more power to accuse or to condemn those who are in heaven, but he is still very powerful and can still cause much pain and suffering for those who are on earth. And he will try to do that. So the passage tells us he has come to cause and wreak havoc on earth. And he desires to commit as many evil acts as he can. Why? Because as it says, his time is short. And he wants to cause as much damage as he can. He is furious that his plans have been fooled by this child. His fury burns against not just Christians, but anyone now. Anyone who is even made in the image of God because they're an object of his love. Even those who don't call themselves Christians are still objects of God's love. These common grace over all people. So, but yet, while unbelievers only have a reason to mourn, we as Christians have a reason to rejoice because we also reside with those who are in heaven. While we may not be there in physicality, we actually do reside there because we know that our eternal like, destiny is secure because the cross applies to us and we know that we will be there one day and such we can also rejoice with those who are there. So now we come back to the dragon being thrown down from earth after the tri- triumphant proclamation. So the dragon sees he has been thrown down. He knows. And upon realizing this, he pursues the woman who gave birth to the child. This child who has ruined and fooled his plans. And so the, the child has obviously been called up to heaven. So now, as he pursues the woman, we see his fury and anger. So this is explaining in more detail the verse 6 from the first vision where we see her fleeing into the wilderness. So we see the woman being pursued by the furious dragon. But then she is given wings like a great eagle, allowing her to be able to escape the dragon. Now, this is meant to show God's love for his people, especially in showing that we will be able to, able to rise above the wrath and fury of the dragon and be able to escape it. Not that he won't be able to kill us or to persecute us, bring suffering, but that in the end, he will not be able to get at us. And so with these wings, God delivers and brings the woman or his people to a safe place of divine comfort and provision. Again, the same, same place that we spoke about in verse 6. This is where they'll be cared for and they do not need to fear the wrath of the dragon because ultimately he cannot get at their souls. And so, again, we see that there's a time, time and half a times. This, again, is just another way of saying three and a half years. So exactly, if you can figure it out, you go nuts. But essentially, it just means that this time is short and that it will come to an end. So now we come to verse 15. The dragon has poured a flood from his mouth to sweep the woman away. Now, this is an image of Satan employing all his weapons in order to kill the woman. He is just fury and angry and not in like a controlled way by God. But he is just, just with everything he can, he wants to kill this woman. And so he wants to take her revenge against her. He could send suffering, persecution, even death her way. But when we come to verse 16, we see the earth actually come and swallow up the floodwaters. This being... God actually doing this. It's God who's commanding the earth to come and swallow up these floodwaters. And we see that he's coming to the aid of the woman once again, that he's caring for the woman. Again, this woman being us. 
that he's caring for us, that we, again, this is a spiritual reality, so we don't see this great drag and all these things going on around us at times. But if we didn't have that keeping us and protecting us, it would be far worse than that. And so after his continued failure to devour the child or to pursue the woman, the dragon becomes furious, and now he turns his wrath against the rest of, his, of her offspring. So the rest of her offspring is now the church throughout the last 2,000 years, including us. So he failed to destroy Israel, being all the Old Testament saints who awaited the Messiah. And now his wrath is turned against us, their offspring. As we're talking now, he will seek to devour us, to bring it against us. And he will hate us because we have conquered him. Because by the blood of the Lamb, by the lives that we live, we show that he has no more power over us. So now he will bring war against us. And although him being conquered does not mean that he is dead or powerless but it rather means that his defeat is certain and there's nothing that he can do to change that. That's why we see the three and a half years, because it reminds us that we simply have to resist for a time, not forever. So now he acts out in anger against us who have defeated him. So this verse also explains something important. So her children are not those who have been born within the church, nor are those who seek to overcome Satan by their own strength and wisdom but it is those who keep the commandments of God and who believe in the testimony of Jesus. Jesus, Specifically, his victory over sin upon the cross. So always be aware that if you seek God's commands, that if you are convicted by those things and actually seek after him, and that if you believe in the gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you have become a target of this great dragon. Although you can't see him, he does know about you and he is coming. And he will employ whatever means he can to lead you away from God and towards evil. Now, God does protect us from the schemes of the devil, but Satan will use many schemes in order to lure us away. He may use physical suffering or sickness. He may use this to convince us that he doesn't care about us, about our family. He'll just continue to throw things our way, but this is to take us away from the promises of God who said that he will provide for our needs, that he will care for us, that in his weakness, and our weakness, sorry, that his strength is given to us. So we're strengthened by him. And, you know, so we haven't been promised that we'll never be sick or that we'll never suffer in this life. But we do have the promises that we've been given to continue to sustain us. And we even have that we may at times feel distant from God. And that may be from us, that may be God, that may be Satan. But Satan will most definitely use that to make you think that God isn't near you, that he's not around you. But we know that he said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Him saying that, and that's sure word. That even when you don't feel like he is there, he most definitely is. He's not, he is a God of feelings, but that isn't predominantly how he tells us that he is here. He actually tells us by his word, and that's why we believe it. So, we also see that the devil may also use good things. He can use, whether that's to a blessing, whether your family's happy and healthy, whether whatever, like good things as well. They're not good or bad, but essentially if they are veering us away from God, taking us away and making us think that we can do it on our own, do it in our own strength and our own wisdom, then that's actually something from the devil. He's using that. Because while he might not necessarily bring those things, he will always try to pervert the things within your heart to make you turn against God. And so we see that these examples just show us that there are many tools which Satan can employ in order to lead us away from God. So John has been shown this vision and is recording it for the sake of the seven churches the church down throughout the ages and we've been introduced to these characters that we've spoken of the woman the dragon and the child we have observed the vision as the dragon sought to pursue the woman 
And also, we have seen that he has been defeated in the heavenly realms, he's been thrown down, and his final defeat is certain come when Jesus returns. And so now we see that the wrath and fear of the dragon is directed against us, against the church. Yet God continues to show his protection and care for us. So now we've come full circle back to why exactly is this a Christmas passage? I know I haven't touched on that at all, but we are coming back to that. So why is the birth of Jesus Christ such a good gift? Why do we celebrate it every Christmas? And it's because we see throughout this passage that when Jesus was born, Satan saw not a helpless child, but rather the Son of God. He saw the person who would fool his plans, who could actually destroy him and end his reign forever. When Jesus came into the world, that signaled the end of the reign of Satan, that he no longer could burden us with our sin. So we celebrate Christmas because his birth is why us Christians can no longer walk, can now walk, no longer under that burden of sin. We are no longer weighed down by the guilt of our action, but rather are free to love God and to serve him with all we can muster. The accusations of the devil have been destroyed by Jesus on our behalf. We see in Romans 8 that nothing can be brought against us before God. He has no right to guilt our conscience. It says in Romans 8 that who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? That is because there is no one who can do that. Because Jesus has destroyed everything that Satan might use against us. That even as consistently, as as we thought, he accuses us day and night. He's seeking any fault and he can't do that. So we're freed from that. All our sin has been atoned for. And we're freed even from the fear of death. Because we know that our final destiny, our final certain like, you know, citizenship in heaven when we go up there, that we're free from the fear of death now because we know where we are going. So us Christians need to, have a, need to have a clear understanding of our adversary, of Satan, the one who is fighting against us in our Christian walk. We need to see him as he is revealed in Scripture. And that... And this is what God is trying to show us in his vision to John. He wants us to see the great and mighty enemy which we face every day and that his wrath is pointed right at us. But just as we said from from the beginning, God doesn't want us to forget that in all these things he is sovereign. Satan is not his nemesis, but rather a rebellious creature that is also under his authority and control. So God wants us to see our enemy clearly, but also show that he is in control of him, that he has secured his inevitable destruction. And I want to conclude with just this bit of imagery here. It was just while I was preparing this sermon and I was sitting in my office with Shell and she was talking to me about Psalm 23. And there was this verse she specifically brought up where it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So in this passage, we see God preparing a feast. This is like a place of rest, a place of comfort, a place of joy, not, rather not hidden away from our enemies, but actually right in the midst of them. So we are surrounded by them. And so we see we like seated at this table, completely surrounded by the powers of darkness. And they're far more powerful than us, far and away. We've seen that from the dragon, that he can easily destroy us should he want to. But because we know, but yet in this image, they cannot approach us. They are sitting there. There's nothing. It's just a table and them. And right in the midst of them, they cannot even approach. They've been completely disarmed by what Jesus did on the cross. They have no powers to come against us, nothing. They simply sit there and just drooling because there's nothing that they can do and so we've finally come to a place where now we have rest where now we can finally be comforted and divinely protected where no matter the things that go on in our lives no matter what's thrown at us because things are certain and secure especially in the life to come we know and can finally have rest so let us understand the gift of Jesus being born 
why the dragon feared him and what he achieved and why we no longer need to fear the dragon anymore. God has shown us this great and heavenly truth that is behind many of the struggles we face. Learn to understand him, become more aware of him and how he has been defeated. Then you'll truly come to appreciate the gift that God gave us in the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to finish up there with a bit of a prayer for us. Just bow your heads. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of your son, for the child that you sent into the world to conquer the powers of Satan so that we are no longer under the weight of sin. We no longer need to feel that guilt, Lord, because you have borne it for us, that you took it upon that cross and you suffered on our behalf. So now, Lord, we pray that we would give up our lives in service to you. Because of all of you done, Lord, that we would gladly give up what is ours, which you have given us anyway. So, Father, thank you for all that you have done, for all that you do. And we pray now, Lord, as we go into our next week, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, that we will not forget about the gift that we've been given in Jesus Christ. So thank you for all that you do. And we pray, Lord, that these words would settle upon us and that we would always remember this gift. So, yeah, we just pray that we have an amazing Christmas, Lord, that you would bless it and we would always remember you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.